0: British TV Podcast with Chrissy and Ryan. News, reviews, what's on TV this week, DVD releases, and special features all about British TV.
1: Hello and welcome to the British TV Podcast, show number 54. I'm Ryan in Seattle.
0: Hi, I'm Chrissy in Seattle.
1: How you doing, Chrissy? Uh, yeah, work's kind of getting you down? Work's
0: getting me down. Yo,
1: yeah. What do you do when you're not at work?
0: <sighs> not recover. No. <laughs> No, I have fibromyalgia, and I get tensed up. In fact, I usually work longer hours Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, and take Wednesday off, but I can't this week because we've adopted this new software, and it's so full of bugs, it's taking all hands on deck just to try to keep uh, life and limb together, so I'm wound up tight, and usually I would have tomorrow off, but alas, I do not. So
1: So you haven't a chance to watch any TV, huh?
0: Not a lot, no, oh. I watched a paul I watched all of Paul Merton in Europe, loved it, oh good, all six parts. in fact, I think it. I liked it even more than China and India, which oh. I also liked a lot. It's
1: an upward curve for him,
0: yeah, I saw once again, they scout out some really interesting things that haven't been shown a million times on t v and then he goes out and experiences them and they ended on a real, real sad note, because mostly they were showing kind of joy-filled, interesting things. But he ended up in Spain, which he said later in, on the one show that that was his favorite of all the places he went. He hadn't been there before. And they were kind of doing uh, archaeology on a fairly recent mass grave of political citizens that had been executed and just dumped in this small town under Franco. And they were there were people there with dental records of their grandparents, you know, wondering if maybe they'd find their grandparents' remains. And Paul went and kind of helped out with that. So it was it, it ended on a down note, but somber. But there was a lot of other things that were very, very fun and interesting.
1: How many episodes were there in that? Six in Palmerton in and Europe.
0: Yeah, it was an hour show, but with commercials, so about forty-six minutes each episode.
1: Great. Well, I've been trying to keep up as much as I can, and we got some new reviews. And good. News, what's on British TV this week? Shows running in the United States. DVD releases a feature on Idris Elba Mm -hmm. and a quiz from Michael. Okay. So reviews. The first is The Song of Lunch. Emma Thompson and Alan Rickman star in this one-off drama that dramatizes Christopher Reed's narrative poem. Rickman plays a book editor who, 15 years after their breakup, meets his former love for a nostalgic lunch at the Soho restaurant they used to frequent. Of course, it's not quite the dingy dive it used to be. It's all, you know, white tablecloths Mm -hmm. and uh, white paint. Although there is dialogue, we hear Rickman reading the poem as the action unfolds.
2: What say we start again?
3: Wind back the years.
1: Minutes,
2: you know what I mean.
3: Ah, my autobiography. No change there. Confessions of a Copy Editor, Chapter 93. It's an ordinary day in a publishing house of ill repute. Another moronic manuscript comes crashing down the chute to be turned into art. This morning it was Wayne Wanker's latest dog's dinner of sex, teenage philosophy and writing course prose. Abracadabra, kick it up the arse and out it goes to be Book of the Week or some other bollocks. What a fraud, what a And Tomorrow, which of our geniuses will escape from the zoo and head straight for us with a new masterpiece, lifeless in his jaws? That's about the size of it. What about you?
2: Business as usual,
3: then. Yes. Business as usual. After such a rant, he finds it difficult to look her in the eye, which is bright, amused, searching, pitiless. But he has to try. A sip may help when he notices, for the first time, the faint, faint nimbus of the lens circling the gold-shot azure of each iris. Well, of course, oracle eyes, he used to call them. The harder you looked, the more sublime and unreadable they became. But have they lost their old force? The heretical question strengthened his own stare. Gaze meets gaze revealing as ever. everything and nothing bad.
1: The problem for me is this goes against my natural dislike of narration in movies. Yes, we hear all sorts of detail and background that can't or isn't shown visually, but when Rickman is telling us what he's thinking, it seems a bit of a waste when he's right there acting on camera. Rickman and Thompson are both such good performers that they can accomplish so much with just a look or a gesture that narration just seems superfluous. It becomes radio with pictures, which is not what good television should be. The Song of Lunch was done by Masterpiece, so no doubt that'll be popping up on PBS at some
0: point. Mm, okay. And they played a married couple, of course, in Love Actually. And so. Have they done it before? seems like they pair up really well, just sort of age and look-wise. They really do look like, ah, oh, yes, they have been married for 20 years when you see the two of them.
1: Well, Alan Rickman is definitely middle-aged these days. Right. And Emma Thompson is totally foxy. She is a babe.
0: Oh, well, and they're both um, instructors at Hogwarts, too, come to think of it.
1: Yes, they are. That's true.
0: Yeah, it was interesting. My Did you remember Rachel Corey? There was a big story around here. She was the Olympia Washington... Kid who went to Palestine and tried to block a bulldozer. Oh, right, died. Yeah, well, Alan Rickman produced a one woman show. He wasn't the woman, he was an actress, but he fronted all the money for it and put on a show in London when I was there last time called I Am Rachel Corey, which was entirely from her diaries. And it played there before it even played, you know, in Seattle or anywhere else in the world. So I thought that was kind of interesting. It was a story that must have moved him a great deal. Oh, that was one of the. And he was the producer. Yeah. Oh, okay. Alan Rickman Presents. It was in the the uh, time out when I was there, but I didn't see it. I saw a few other things.
1: Well, like everyone, I saw Alan Rickman playing Hans Gruber in 1988's Die Hard. Mm-hmm. But I was also very impressed with his performance on television in The Spirit of Man, a 1989 one-off by Peter Barnes. He was great, and I got to ask him about it at a question and answer session after a film once, and his response was, oh, you're the one who saw it.
0: Hmm. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Emma Thompson, other than her famous cameo in the episode of The Young Ones, one of the first times I saw her was...
0: I've got a Porsche. I remember her line, yes. Yes.
1: (laughs) ...was her self-titled sketch comedy show Thompson in 1988. At the time, I called her Britain's answer to Tracy Ullman, who by then defected to the United States to continue her comedy career. What was notable about Thompson was the lack of laugh track. It was almost unheard of for a sketch show in those days. I thought, she seems talented. I bet she'll go places.
0: Yeah.
1: Next review is Single Father. David Tennant stars in this grim drama as Dave, a happily married photographer with four kids whose life falls apart when his wife is suddenly killed in a traffic accident. She's actually struck by a police car, ironically, and kudos to the stuntwoman who did an amazing, though heart-dropping, flip in the air. Now Dave has to pick up the pieces and he's just not equipped to handle raising his kids, one of whom was his wife's from a previous relationship.
2: Dad, I just don't go to registration, okay? I mean, you don't go to registration, I don't know that... The what? I don't know this happens! Why don't you go to registration? Because you keep asking me how I am and I don't need reminded how I am, okay? So I just go to lessons!
4: Okay, so why haven't I had this letter from the council?
2: I don't know. Letters go missing.
4: Oh, come on, Lucy.
2: What, we do in the house so that doesn't happen to? <sighs> phone the school, phone the teacher, phone my English teacher! Oh, you want me phone the school? Phone my English teacher! Why the English teacher? I've got homework to do. I've got a history essay to write.
4: <sighs> I mean, she comes in like she's been to school. I don't complain about of homework and... I mean, it's so convincing. Ah, up terrible liars at that age. Do not the school text you when
2: she's absent?
4: Yeah, to Rita's phone.
2: And Lucy texts back as if it's you.
4: Forges sick notes. Intercepts letters. Although she says no. Compulsively devious.
5: What's she doing if she's bunking off?
4: And how do I get her to to talk so she can say what's really happening? Oh, I don't know.
2: Come on, you teach your 11s. Well,
4: I, no, I shout at them, I sneer at them. They hate me
5: and I hate them. And then in the sixth one we renegotiate.
1: And Dave is doing himself no favors when he falls for his wife's best friend who is married. What a mess. This is the most subdued I've ever seen Tennant act. Even his Hamlet was more a man of action than Dave, at least Hamlet got to do some comic relief at times. Doctor Who fans who hated Midnight because it showed the Doctor as a victim and out of control of the circumstances will definitely find it difficult to relate to him here. The four episodes promise to be a long, hard slog for Dave and the audience, but Tennant is the right choice for the part. He's completely credible while bringing in enough sympathy from his previous roles to keep the audience with him.
0: He was pretty subdued in Einstein and Edison, too. Did you see that? Yes, I did. Yeah.
1: But he was still kind of making things happen. He Mm -hmm. was a protagonist. And here he really is just sort of a victim. I mean, so much is piled on him, and he seems like he's just going to sink under it all. And... You know, being kind of a you know BBC Scottish drama, I don't expect a happy ending. You know, uh, it's not going to be all kisses and puppies. Although, in fact, there is a dog in it,
0: well, you know, it's interesting the connection too because the other star of Einstein and Essen was Andrew Cir- Andy Circus, who took over from Tennant in Burke and Hare, the John Landis movie that's full of amazing people that's going to be just coming out. Oh, really I, soonish, I don't know. isn't it? Yeah, with Simon Pegg. And Jessica Stevenson is playing Andy Serkis' wife, so she would have been David Tennant's wife had the original casting stood. And of course, Tennant left to do the pilot for NBC, which didn't get picked up, but...
1: He's saying, it was okay now. I've gotten past it.
0: Well, good. He just wanted to go where it was sunny, like all the Brits secretly do.
1: He's very young and vibrant in this show, but it's a bit depressing. But Tennant fans, stick with it. News. Doctor Who is to film in the USA. On Sunday, BBC America announced that the next season of Doctor Who, currently filming in Wales, would be making a trip to Utah in America for the two-part <laughs> season opener to be shot on location in November. There have been many Doctor Who episodes set in America before, including Dalek, which was in Utah, the Paul McGann TV movie, and The Gunfighters. But this will be the first time the main actors and production team will shoot in the United States. The TV movie, although it was set in San Francisco, was shot entirely in Vancouver, Canada back in 1996. So, Utahns, keep your eyes peeled for Matt Smith and Karen Gillan next month, and the rest of us will see it broadcast next April.
0: That was funny. Do you remember the Doctor Who confidential about the Daleks on Broadway episode where they were saying that only two of the designers actually got to go to the United States and take pictures?
1: Yeah, they filled some background uh, plates from the Empire State Building and then some exteriors, and then they ended up having to digitally... Changes to make it look like 1933
0: anyway. Right. But um, Tennant was saying that, the, he was pointing to them and saying, they got to go to New York and we're sitting here in a, in a shopping mall car park and a dog, local dog just weed on the TARDIS. Seems very <laughs> cross about that. As you would be.
1: Well, now he's got to come to America mm-hmm. and see what it's like. But yeah, it's kind of cool. They're coming all the way here and they're promising it's going to you know, start in the deserts of Utah and end up in the White House. And it takes place in 1969. Oh, okay. So that should be cool. ITV's Downton Abbey has already been picked up for a second season, the broadcaster announced. Currently in the middle of its initial eight-episode run on Sunday nights, the period drama is scoring huge ratings for the commercial broadcaster. It's a terrific series, and Americans will get a chance to see for themselves next year on PBS's Masterpiece Classics. And we did a review of Downton Abbey in show 52. BBC One is working on a four-part adaptation of Philip K. Dick's The Man in the High Castle, Set in a world where the Nazis won World War II, Howard Brenton, the playwright and spooks writer, is adapting Dick's Hugo Award-winning dystopian novel, which will be executive produced by Ridley Scott, and it will air in 2011. What's on TV for the week of October 13th to October 19th? Wednesday, BBC One has Bang Goes the Theory, followed by Drama in Waterloo Road.
0: ITV One has new Midsummer Murders with John Nettles, titled *The Noble Art*. Thursday
1: on BBC One, *Have I Got News for You* returns for its fortieth series with guest host Sherlock star Benedict Cumberbatch. The panelists alongside Ian Hislop and Paul Merton, whom we profiled last week, will be Victoria Corn and John Richardson.
0: Oh. I think Victoria is the sister of Giles, isn't she? Seems like all the siblings have TV shows over there.
1: It's part of their rights as the privileged class. let see.
0: It's followed by the second season of Reggie Perrin, starring Martin Clunes. Ryan, over there, thought this remake was unnecessary, but his wife liked the satire of corporate life.
1: River Cottage Every Day with Hugh Fernley Whittingstall continues on Channel 4. Phone
0: Shop continues on E4.
1: Law and Order UK continues on ITV1.
0: The topical news panel show, Mock the Week, is on BBC Two.
1: Celebrity Juice continues on ITV Two.
0: The King is Dead on BBC Three has a compilation episode featuring outtakes. And a radio note for
1: Thursday, BBC Radio 4 will begin playing Richard Herring's Objective, where in the first episode he aims to reclaim the toothbrush mustache on behalf of comedy, taking it back from Hitler and giving it to its rightful owner, Charlie Chaplin. And you could listen to that anywhere in the world on BBC's iPlayer for seven days after Thursday.
0: Yeah, even though it was for radio, he still grew one because he was sporting it on Have I Got News for You last spring when he was a contestant. And they were querying, saying, why do you, are you wearing that mustache? So he explained it was for a project. Friday, QI is on BBC One with guest panelists Ruby Wax, Ross Noble, and Sean Locke. If you can wait an extra day, the extended version of QI is on BBC2 Saturday, and it's followed by new tricks. ITV1
1: continues Paul O'Grady live.
0: Jimmy Carr hosts a comedy roast of Davina McCall on Channel 4. Davina is best known in Britain for hosting Big Brother, and you'll be able to see her turned into a zombie in Dead Set later this month on IFC.
1: 8 Out of 10 Cats continues on Channel 4. The Rob
0: Brydon Show on BBC Two has guest Ronnie Corbett. Saturday, Shelf Stackers finishes its run on BBC Two. Harry Hill's TV Burp continues on ITV One. The third season of Merlin continues on BBC One. Michael McIntyre's Comedy Roadshow is on BBC One.
1: Sunday, Time Team continues on Channel Four. BBC Two has an interesting sounding documentary, Damn Busters Declassified. Martin Shaw presents this look at the famous 1943 raid on Germany using new technology developed by the British at the time. The Dambusters, the amazing 1954 movie that dramatized the events, is not as well-known in the USA as it should be. I caught it during one of its many, many repeats on the BBC, and besides being a great war movie, it clearly served as the model for the Death Star sequence in Star Wars, right down to some of the dialogue. Check it out if you get a chance.
0: Downton Abbey continues on ITV1.
1: On BBC One, Single Father continues.
0: Thorn continues on Sky One.
1: Monday, The Sarah Jane Adventures continues on CBBC with The Vault of Secrets. And it repeats Wednesday afternoon on BBC One.
0: Is CBBC a separate station? or It's, is it, it's just BBC
1: Three during the day. During
0: the day. I thought that was... Yeah, yes. okay. Spooks continues on BBC One.
1: Whitechapel continues on ITV One.
0: Genius with Dave Gorman continues on BBC Two.
1: The Inbetweeners finishes its run on e 4 and it's followed by School of Comedy. Ask Rod Gilbert continues
0: on BBC One. Tuesday, The Sarah Jane Adventures is on CBBC. Whites with Alan Davis continues on BBC Two.
1: Harry Enfield's sketch comedy series, Harry and Paul, is on afterwards.
0: Lip Service continues on BBC Three. And
1: Argumental continues on Dave.
0: In the United States, on BBC America, Friday, it's Law & Order, UK.
1: Sunday, Luther begins its run starring Idris Elba, and we'll have a feature about it
0: in just a few minutes. Top Gear continues on Monday night. We did a feature on the series in Show 51. On Adult Swim on Friday night is the UK version of The Office. IFC has an It Crowd marathon, Wednesday. Day and Thursday afternoons.
1: On PBS's Masterpiece Mystery, Wallander concludes...
0: DVD releases Criminal Justice 2, the second season of BBC One's five-part miniseries from last October.
1: The Tudor Season 4, the final season of the Henry VIII series, seen on Showtime, starring Jonathan Rhys-Meyers.
0: Yes, the young man who freaks out in airports repeatedly. What's this? Oh, every time he's in the news, he's had some hissy fit in an airport. I think they just inspire the worst in him. Maybe he's a a scared fire or something or too much time in the pre-departures lounge. I don't know. Maybe
1: like Kevin Smith, he needs to start taking a bus more often.
0: Could be. Inspector Lewis, season three, the Inspector Moore spinoff starring Kevin Waitley. (laughs)
1: And our feature this week is on Idris Elba. Look at her with her
2: eyes like a flame.
1: The BBC drama Luther starring Idris Elba comes to BBC America this week and we take a look at the talented British actor who's probably better known for the American shows he's appeared in than shows he has in England. Idris Elba began his career in the 1990s and made his first TV appearance on Bramwell, a period medical drama on ITV. Comedy fans might recall his role in a 1995 episode of the memorable Absolutely Fabulous when Elba played a gigolo named Hilton. Here he is in the clutches of the insatiable Patsy.
2: So, Hilton, that's a pretty name. Thanks. (laughs) Sit down for a pretty face.
5: Thanks.
1: Have you done this before? First time. Oh, well, then you're very lucky. You're in very experienced
5: hands.
0: (laughs) Hey,
1: has anyone ever told you you look a bit like Sean Connery? Hey, Hilt, if
0: I said you have a beautiful body, would you hold it against me? (laughs) Shall we dance? I'll lead. I did see that episode, but it doesn't really stick out in my memory. I'm a- I pulled it out and looked at it, and, and uh, there
1: he is. Many supporting roles on British television followed, including such series as The Bill, Degrees of Error, The Ruth Rendell Mysteries, and The Governor. He then joined the cast of the soap opera Family Affairs for Channel 5. Now, I first remember seeing Idris Elba in the supernatural series Ultraviolet on Channel 4 in 1998. This cult series about modern-day vampires in London starred Jack Davenport as a police officer who encounters strange going-ons when his best friend mysteriously disappears. Here he crosses swords with a special investigator played by Elba.
3: Don't give s- about his finances.
5: Okay. That is a transcript of a phone conversation between Pollard and Jack five days before his death. Tapes day, if you want to check it out. They talk of a payment of 2000 Jack paid for his honeymoon the next day in cash.
3: How long have you had Jack under surveillance?
5: Not Jack. Pollard.
3: Then where were you the night before last?
5: He gave us the slip.
3: Well, that doesn't sound difficult.
5: You saw Jack last night? No. Whatever he's telling you, he's not being straight with you. Yeah, unlike you. Now, I know you two boys go back a long way. But he stopped being your friend two nights ago. Now, and now he's using you. Yeah, excuse me. hold on a minute. Hey, hey. Don't take everything he says as gospel.
1: Ultraviolet is a fascinating series worth checking out. Coincidentally, the actor who played the missing Jack was Stephen Moyer, who would later play another vampire in HBO's True Blood. Fox TV in America shot a pilot for an American remake of Ultraviolet, which featured Idris Elba reprising his original role, but the series was not picked up. After dipping his toes into U.S. waters, Elba moved to New York where he appeared on stage and in an episode of Law & Order. In 2002, he co-starred in the series that would make his name on both sides of the Atlantic, The Wire. The acclaimed HBO series set in Baltimore followed drug dealers and the police unit investigating them. As Stringer Bell... Idris Elba created one of the most fascinating criminals ever seen on television. He was more a businessman than a drug pusher. Elba was one of many British actors to appear in The Wire over the years, including Dominic West and Aidan Gillen, all of whom sported very convincing Balmer accents. The Wire would run for five years and is considered by many people to be one of the best, if certainly not textured, series ever on television. So it's not a bad show to have on your resume. In 2009, Elba got to flex his comedy muscles when he appeared on a six-episode arc of The Office on NBC. He played Charles Minor, an executive of Dunder Mifflin who makes life difficult for Steve Carell's character of Michael Scott. Part of the fun was Elba's stone-faced reaction to the zany workplace and how prankster Jim completely failed to make a good impression on him. So we come to 2010 when Idris Elba played the title character in the BBC's Luther. As John Luther, a London police detective, we first see him in pursuit of a pedophile whom he allows to fall from a high platform and ends up in a coma. Luther suffers a mental breakdown for several months but then resumes work back at the Met. On the job, he's a combination of Cracker and Columbo, and his first case back pits him against a woman who may have killed her parents in cold blood.
5: Alex, are you familiar with Occam's razor?
1: All things being
2: equal, the simplest solution is the best solution.
5: That's right. What that principle tells me is that the only person known to have been at your parents' house this morning, it was you.
2: I don't see how it's possible to arrive at that conclusion.
5: Well, there was no evidence of an intruder.
2: But absence of evidence isn't evidence of absence. I know,
5: I'm making a leap. It's a little leap, though. It's more of a hop.
2: Is this where you ask me if I hated my parents?
5: It is about that time, yeah.
2: Did they make me a freak? Yes. Did I hate them? Absolutely. Did I kill them?
5: No. Can you prove that?
2: I can't prove a negative. Can't be done.
5: Innocence is a negative. It's the absence of guilt.
2: Meaning the burden of proof is entirely yours. If you think I did this, then you need to demonstrate how
5: and when. know, and no. I won't be able to do that, will Well... I?
2: you can certainly try
5: because there is nothing you don't interact with the things we know in the way that we expect your presence your accents can only be inferred by a certain absence
2: is that a compliment
5: absolutely
2: are you trying to beguile me
5: (laughs) no i wouldn't be so foolish but i will tell you this alice you can revel in your brilliance for as long as you like but people slip up Happens time and time again.
2: Well, that's just faulty logic postulated on imperfect data collection. What if you only catch people who make mistakes? That would skew the figures, wouldn't it?
5: Yes, it would. Hmm. But criminals aren't as smart as they think they are.
2: Oh, that must get monotonous. <laughs> For someone as brilliant.
1: Alice Morgan there, played brilliantly by Ruth Wilson, and we saw her earlier this year in Small Island, where she played Benedict Cumberbatch's wife. As Alice, a seductive redhead, she plays mind games with Luther because she knows he can't prove her guilt. But Luther is no Superman. His personal life is marred by his estrangement with his wife. In this scene, he visits her one night.
5: Wow. nice stress. just come from dinner. Come in. Hi.
4: What's wrong? Right? You look tired. T-
5: me? Oh, no, I'm alright. Why? What's wrong?
2: John, I know. I know what you came here to discuss. But before you say anything, you need to know that I've met somebody.
5: Sorry. I met someone. What do you mean you met someone? Who? Someone. What do you mean? Um, sorry? When?
2: A while ago. Huh?
3: Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter.
5: Are you sleeping with him? Well... This is my
1: home. No. He smashes up a door pretty well there. Mm. Her lover, incidentally, is played by Paul McGann. I really like the first episode of Luther, which is much more a psychological drama than a police procedural, and I'm very keen to see how his relationship with the sociopathic Alice develops. Fans of Cracker and the New Sherlock who are looking for another well acted cerebral crime drama should check out Luther, which begins this Sunday on BBC America. The first season runs six episodes, and two two hour specials are in the works for next year to continue the story. Luther creator Neil Cross's next project will be a Christmas time ghost story, no, not a Christmas carol, but an adaption of M.R. James's Whistle and I'll Come to You, My Lad, starring John Hurt for BBC Two. Meanwhile, you can see Idris Elba on the big screen on The Losers, and next year's Thor playing Hemdall in the Kenneth Branagh-directed film. And he's also a DJ and has started a career as a hip-hop musician. So next week, Sherlock is coming to PBS. We'll have a preview of the series, co-created by Stephen Moffat and Mark Gatiss, and see what a Sherlock Holmes superfan thinks about the modern update. That'll be in show 55 of the British TV podcast. So we have a new quiz from Michael, number six, if you're keeping count. Oh, Michael, you missed your chance to do an all prisoner theme quiz. I would have grooved on that one. But instead, it's called From Radio to TV, which I think Chrissy might have an advantage on because she listens to a lot more audio than I do. I just listen to podcasts.
4: Hi, Chrissy and Ryan. This week's quiz is radio shows that moved to television. There are five clips, and I'm after the name of the show. After each clip, there'll be a few seconds of theme music, then on to the answer. Here's the first clip. Basically, what you're trying to tell me is the ship is out of control. It's the weird casking that freaks me.
5: Every time you try to operate one of these weird black controls which are labelled in black on a black background, a small black light lights
4: up black to let you know you've done it. Hey, what is this? Some kind of galactic hyperhearse? Maybe it was designed by somebody with eyes that respond to different wavelengths. Well, didn't have much imagination. Oh, I thought
1: he was gonna play the original radio <laughs> versions, but. <laughs> <laughs> that's <a> TV version. <laughs> yes. that would be Douglas Adams Hitchhiker's <laughs> Guide to the Galaxy. <laughs> and that and I can only tell it's the TV version because of the American accent on Trillion there. <laughs>
4: The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy was created by the late Douglas Adams and was broadcast on Radio 4 in 1978. 1981 was the year it debuted on TV and 2005 saw the release of a big-budget Hollywood movie version. Unfortunately, that didn't quite capture the feel of the original. Clip 2. How old are they? Go on, tell the nice lady.
3: Nearly six. Nearly...
2: He's just got some money from his uncle and he wants to open his first bank account.
5: Well, we do have a Junior Saver account. You get a free Percy Piggy Bank. Oink, oink.
2: Lovely.
5: And you get entered into a prize draw to win a free trip to (gasps) Eurydice.
2: Oh, I think you'd like to open one of these, please, wouldn't you?
5: Computer says no.
0: It would be Little Britain. Yes. Two series on the radio before it got put on TV. They were not sure about it. And of course, it was a huge hit. Oh, okay. Did they transfer a lot of the sketches or did they just come up with new ones? They came up with a lot of new ones. It's interesting. I have all the radio shows. I bought them and it included a DVD of some of the radio show tapings that Matt Matt Lucas had made by sticking his own video camera in the corner. So you see them all stepping up to the microphone and it was kind of fun. But yeah, there were certain things that only worked for radio that they had to cut. So they, they... were known really all through the series not just the first series for writing way more material than they would actually use they wanted to have a float to cut things that didn't turn out very well so that they could really pack the funny into the shows yeah that's what the monty python guys used to do Mm -hmm. too david arnold theme music there
4: britain 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 that was of course little britain Starting out on Radio 4, Matt Lucas and David Williams' Little Britain moved to the digital channel BBC Three in 2003. By the final series, Series 3, they had been promoted to BBC One and a US version was transmitted in 2008. Clip three.
5: Hello, I'm Jürgen Habermaster. Yeah, let's have a TV off, shall Uh, we? uh, (laughs) Easy, hang on a sound. (laughs) When I'm making my avant-garde films, I can often suffer from the pain of trapped wind. It can be very uncomfortable, like having an angry crab scuttle from side to side in my tummy space. Ah! I am the angry crab of trapped wind! Ooh! Wah,
3: ooh! Oh, my
2: sweet lord. Are you the new face of trapped wind? <laughs> nice
5: workout. Blast away the pain of trapped wind with these.
0: Windy Blast Fast.
5: Windy Blast Fast.
1: I thought that was Simon Pegg there, but uh, you know nope, what it is. No, that was the Mighty Boosh. Yes.
0: My boys. I, I was out for a few weeks because I had uh, carpal tunnel surgery and couldn't really be much function in the office. When I came back, I had a Boosh-themed decorated desk, and a very artistic gal had done the Mighty Boosh sort of skull, But and then in the Boosh font, she had written, We Have Missed the Mighty Chrissy. On a, <laughs> That Aww. was very kind. So, yes, I'm a bit of a fan. I've spread the the Boosh love all over at work, too. They're funny guys. Mm-hmm.
4: Come with us now on a journey through time. The Mighty Bush with Noel Fielding and Julian Barrett came to BBC Three via stage, the Edinburgh Festival and radio. Starting on Radio London Live in 2001, it moved to Radio 4 and later Radio 7 until it hit our TV screens in 2004. Clip four. So let's go through it one last time. All we've got is a name, an address, an occupation, a phone number, a modus operandi, motive, opportunity, a confession, and him in the room. Aye. So I ask you all, where the hell do we go from here?
0: Ooh, that's hard because I know it's I've heard it. It's David Mitchell. Oh, then Mitchell and Webb. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, they're, they're the ones I've really not listened to or watched the most.
4: I just recognize his voice.
0: Yeah.
4: BBC Two has been the home to the Mitchell and Webb look, starring David Mitchell and Robert Webb since 2006. The Radio 4 version of the show was known as the Mitchell and Webb sound and was first transmitted in 2003. Clip 5. Don't touch the things.
1: I was waiting for this one. This is a
4: local shop for local people. There's nothing for you here. I can pay. Keep your hands where I can see them. I have a husband, you know. He's up the stairs. He's sure to hear everything. If you were to come back here and touch them, I... uh... Edward, Edward! Oh, hello. What's going on? What's all this shouting? We'll have no trouble here.
1: Yes, this was uh League of gents. And a friend of mine said you have to hear the radio one and sent me on the town with the League of Gentlemen, which I'm sure oh, yeah. Michael's about to tell us that's what it was called, but I'm that's when he first said this was what the quiz was going to be. I thought he's going to play League of mm-hmm. Gentlemen. <laughs> and we're going to do something about them in a couple of weeks.
0: Uh JT saw them. They played New York, the little uh, Westbeth Theater where that launched Eddie Azard's career. Big time by hosting him for four months way back in the '90s. That really kind of got him started. And they've had Graham Norton, they've had Julian Clary, Dylan Moran's done a bunch of shows there. But the Le League of Gents played there. Quite established on TV. I don't. I think they had already shown all their all their TV series. And she said they perform in um, tuxedos with no costumes or anything like that. They just, really? Yeah.
1: Okay. so more like the radio show. Mm-hmm.
4: The League of Gentlemen started as a stage show of sketches in 1994 and moved to Radio 4 as On the Town. It was set in a fictional town of Spent. In 1999, the show moved to TV on BBC Two. The town was renamed as Royston Vasey after the real name of adult comedian Roy Chubby Brown. Three series were made and a movie released in 2005. That's it for this week. Hope you liked it. All the best, Michael. Chrissy should like it. She got five out of five.
0: Yeah. One thing that wasn't there that was kind of interesting was the Flight of the Concords, the New Zealand group. But did you know that prior to their TV show, which was made for cable in this country, they had a six-part radio show made by the BBC, which was narrated by Rob Brydon and all the stories they used did get recycled into the first series here in the songs. It was the same sort of premise. This New Zealand duo was trying to break into show business, except in this point they're going to London. They end up going to Earl's court and sharing a flat with about 18 other New Zealanders and they're sort of shown their little egg dish that's their allotment of the whole refrigerator for putting their food and and they also had guests Jimmy Carr was in one episode Greg Proops was in an episode radio show too because of course flight of the concords are from New Zealand there Their patron saint in their heads was Neil Finn of Crowded House and Split Ends. So whenever there was a problem, their manager would call Neil Finn at home and wake him up and get him all. He'd sort of be grouchy, but too polite to tell them off. And and so you'd hear, oh, well, I got your new number, Neil. You changed it, and I hadn't gotten that email you must have sent, but I managed to track it down. And so they would just bother him. So it's funny because they're the same but very different at the same time between the radio and the jump to telly. I'm pretty sure The Flight of the concords has been on in the UK, too. It seems like their cup of tea.
1: Oh, yeah. And those two guys showed up in The Simpsons a couple weeks ago. Oh, did they? Yes. Cool. I'll
0: have to catch that at some point. They played Edinburgh, and that just launched them. In fact, I have some old radio shows that uh, Peg and Frost were broadcasting from the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. They were doing a show every day. Some nice person recorded them and put them online, and Jimmy... Uh, Carr was just raving over the flight of the Concord. He thought they were the best thing he'd ever seen. So that was kind of neat that they put him in their first radio show. Hmm.
1: Well, I, like I listen to a lot of podcasts, and one of the ones that I enjoy is called British Invaders. Mm-hmm. And they do two-part episodes every two weeks about different cult TV shows. For example, we talked a little bit about Ultraviolet, and if you want to know all about Ultraviolet, because we're not going to cover it here, because it's an old show, Mm -hmm. British Invaders is a good place to do it. and They sent us some cute promos. I'm not going to play one of them here, but it's uh, to do with the propensity in British TV to recast all the time, and the different ways you can go about that. Mm -hmm. How to continue a television series after a major actor has left the cast. Part 1. The Quatermass Method. Simply recast a new actor in the original role. Hope that no one notices that a familiar character now looks completely different. This was also famously used in the James Bond films. For more about British science fiction television, listen to the British Invaders podcast at www.britishinvaders.com So that's British Invaders. Meanwhile, we'd like you to go visit our website, which is at www.britishtvpodcast.com, and there you could find links to headlines, show notes, what's on TV this week, and an archive of our previous 53 episodes, or you could send us feedback to feedback at We'd love to hear from you. If you want to hear those other British invader promoters, write and ask us. That'll inspire some emails to fly in, no doubt. And you could follow us on Twitter. Thank you to everybody who has started following us already, and our Twitter. ID is Brit TV podcast. It's very tempting at one o'clock every uh, afternoon to recording going, Oh my God, four hours to go until the podcast goes and it's not written yet. Oh, in the five minutes it would take me to type that out. I'd say, like, oh, I can be working on this. Oh, well, we've survived another show. Woohoo! Here we are. So what have I got to watch here? I've got oh, some more crime dramas here. in betweeners, Sarah Jane, haven't seen those yet. Harry and Paul. They keep making more television, which means I have to keep watching it.
0: Yeah, well, I've got stuff on my on my DVR to watch as well. But I'm sort of wanting to dust off and watch um, Oliver Twist. Which, which version? The 1999. It's very long because it was so- Andrew Davis. He took the book and... Little bits that were just explained was, oh, why the reason that Oliver had all these people after him was he had a half-brother who secretly wanted his fortune and his name was this and he, you know, they'll just throw something in there. And what he did was he took things that were only mentioned in passing in the book and expanded them. So the first hour of the show is the whole romance between Oliver's mother And her married lover who gets her pregnant, but he's really married to Lindsay Duncan and has a son who was run over by a horse in his youth and has all kinds of problems with epilepsy and some other things played by Mark Warren. And Sophia Miles played Oliver's mother. So the whole first hour is her, which isn't in the book at all. Hmm. So they expanded all the backstory. In fact, Mark Warren knew that the character of monks in the book was just a very small character. So he got the job and this was in the 90s. So he wasn't really a household name at all. He hadn't even been on The Vice yet. Oh, nice. And then Hustle. He thought he was just going to be in there for a day. And then he read the script and realized it was essentially one of the leading roles of this ensemble piece. And he, he loved every minute of it. And his makeup and his hair are almost identical to what it might even be the same wig that he played as Dracula. Oh. I mean, it's exact, And the suit of the Victorian times, everything is the same, but he's stunning. He is just, I, I haven't played, seen him played a character like that before or since, but he just created this horrible person who you still just your heart breaks for is and brilliant. So I've, I haven't watched it all the way through. I only watched a few when I got this, I, um, oh. I watched his parts and I watched Lindsay Duncan cause love her. So I think I want to just sit down and watch the whole thing. It looks like Lindsay Duncan's going to be reunited with Matt Smith because Matt Smith made his West End debut p- playing her son in a play a couple of years ago and won a bunch of awards for it. And as I said, if you can hold your own on stage opposite her, you're something else. She is a powerhouse. Yeah, Matt Smith is going to be playing Christopher Isherwood. Yes. Christopher and his kind. And I think that Lindsay's his mom and that oh. again. So that'll be kind of fun. These pairings and couplings and taking apart and putting together.
1: Well, I've enjoyed Lindsay Duncan quite a bit in Rome.
0: Yeah, well, she almost met Matt Smith's doctor. It was just by a few months, you know, that she happened to meet Tennant instead. <laughs> <laughs> but she'll she'll never meet Eleven, alas, unless he goes back in time. I doubt that's going to no, happen. No, it won't happen, I know.
1: <laughs> oh, well. She's had her Doctor Who moment. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye.
4: Goodbye.